You'll notice in the bulletin that there's uh, an insert, and this is going to reference to just how we, um, or be a reference to how we even start the message today. Before uh, we get to our passage, I thought it would be good for us to have a little bit of a theological conversation. And when we study a passage, not only do we want to know uh, what it means and how it applies, but we also want to know the theological significance. And what do I mean by that? I mean, how does it relate to us in our personal relationship with God? That's what I mean. How, how we interact with him. How um, we share fellowship with him. And last week, we launched uh, our new series, the Grace of God series, and we began our study with um, a, a look at Titus 2.11. Okay? And this allowed us first to define what the grace of God was, and it revealed to us in Titus 2.11 that it's a grace that saves. It's a redemptive grace. And we rejoice in that. And then we talked about, or I provided an overview of kind of where we were going to go in this passage. Because there are other d- dynamics of God's grace and how we relate to them. I shared last week that a saving grace, a redemptive grace needs to be featured first Because without it, none of the other dynamics would be possible. We cannot know what sanctifying grace is or persevering grace or glorifying grace is if we first don't know and understand what God's redemptive grace is. And the reason being that pre-salvation, an unbeliever has no spiritual life and is considered spiritually dead. So the other dynamics of grace in our passage necessitate or or are contingent upon salvation and we define the saving grace of God as the utterly undeserved favor of God in salvation toward those that only deserve punishment through saving grace God justifies or declares righteous uh, unrighteous guilty sinners who only deserve punishment. And the divine declaration and justification initiates a new dynamic of God's grace called sanctification. Today's message is going to focus on sanctification. So I thought it would be good to briefly share some doctrinal distinctions between our justification and sanctification. Actually, I wanted to start with definitions. And those should be, if you didn't get a handout, raise your hand, I'm sure an usher can can bring you one, but there's a little insert, looks like, everybody got it? I see a lot of heads nodding yes. Trust in the Lord, you, you, you got one. But I, I want to start by defining uh, these terms for us. Justification, the divine declaration whereby a repentant sinner is declared righteous in the sight of God. That's, what it, that's really the, the, how we would define justification. Sanctification. The progressive work of both God and man that makes believers more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. And notice the definition. It describes it as a progressive action, a progressive work before featuring the outcome. is to free us from sin. And the goal is always to make Christians more and more like Jesus Christ in our actual lives. And we'll see this spelled out for us in our verse today, even describing sanctification in the present age. 
and to make sure there's no confusion between the doctrines of justification and the doctrine of sanctification, I thought it would be good to take a snapshot of the distinctions and briefly talk through them. And I was just going to do this in the notes, but I, I wanted to serve you. I, wanted, I want to help you to, to see this clearly. And I was going to put it up on a PowerPoint, and I was like, there's no way people are going to be able to write that fast. So thank you, admin team, for coming up with the idea. Let's, let's just make it an insert and, and get it into everybody's hands. All right. Well, let's start looking at these distinctions. They're numbered on the left-hand side, and some of these will move through uh, quicker than others. They're, they're pretty straightforward. For example, we'll move quickly uh, by number one because it really just involves how we define it. That it's a positional legal standing when we're declared righteous. Okay? We're, we're redeemed. We're credited a, a legal righteousness before a holy God. Our sanctification, on the other hand, is a progressive internal condition. Now, some of you who are, have some theological girth and understanding know this already, that there is an overlap between our justification and our sanctification, right? And that's called our positional sanctification. At the moment that we're justified, we are also sanctified and set apart. And that happens simultaneously, but from that point, there's also a progression in our sanctification, right? We move and we progress towards Christ-likeness, being more and more free from sin and becoming more and more like Christ in our actual lives. Let's look at number two. Our justification leads to obedience to the gospel commands. There are commands in the gospel, Everyone knows what they are. Or you should know what they are. We're, we're called to what? Repent and believe. Those are the gospel commands. In our evangelism class, we talked about it being TNT, turning and trusting. And then it's powerful that when God performs that miracle in the life of somebody in the heart, that they actually turn and trust. It's explosive. Sanctification, on the other hand, leads to obedience to all New Testament commands. That's where the imperatives come in. They're, they're going to help us become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they're designed for. It's not a have to. It's not a drudgery. It's not a God in heaven saying, you must. That's not it. It's a, it's, a, it's a joy, it's a privilege, because in the process of us um, adhering to the commands of Scripture, we become more and more like Christ. And that's where life is. That's where joy is. That's where celebration is. Well, number three is this. The power of Christ through the gospel in our justification declares us righteous. And I want to talk just a little bit about this. That when I'm talking about the power of Christ through the gospel. And, and what I'm about to share is going to rock the boat for some of you in the room. The gospel in and of itself has no power without Christ. The gospel in and of itself has no power without Christ. 
you can take the facts of the gospel, the truths of the gospel, right? You can present those truths as fact even to somebody. But Christ empowers that message. And it's the very reason why the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then what's he say? For it is the power of God in salvation. And it is a conduit of grace. And Christ gave it power. So, of course, we celebrate the gospel. We, we cherish the gospel. But I wanted to help, help us see something that's important. That it is always an avenue to get us to focus on Christ. And becoming more Christ-like. That, that is what the conduit of grace does. That's what it points us to. And the power of Christ through the gospel also enables righteous living. This is what allows us to live for the glory of God. This is, and we're going to see this, and I don't need to spend much time here because we are going to camp in this arena today as we talk about righteous living Okay, I was trying to come up with an illustration. I was talking to a brother, just, just even as it relates to, to try to understand um, the, the dynamic, just even as it relates uh, to the gospel. And I, I want to share this um, because, again, we, we celebrate and love and cherish the gospel. That's, it, 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 allowed, it was the grace of God that allowed us to be reconciled to Christ. It is what allowed us to have a personal relationship. And I think that every, it's like the Trinity, every human illustration that you try to provide is going to fall short, but I want to at least try. I want to at least give a mental picture. Imagine your spouse, somebody, imagine somebody introducing you to your spouse. A friend invited you to an event, right? And they introduced you to that one to that person. And you initiated through that a relationship with with that person and it turned into this lifelong beautiful relationship. Question for you. Are we forever thankful for that friend that introduced us to the one that has changed our lives forever that we get to walk through? Do we appreciate that friend and have words to describe that friend that blesses us in such immense measure? We do. We are so thankful for them. We praise God for them. And yet, the best is to come. The best is in the daily ongoing relationship as it continues. And we want to be mindful. And as we share our stories, and this can be in your marriage story, but I'm talking about in our testimonies, as we share our testimony, we want to talk about the reality of the gospel and how it introduced us to the one that we worship, to the one that we want to be like, to the one that we adore as we just sing songs about. Number four, our justification is a once-for-all-time event. 
It happens one time that you're justified. Our sanctification is a continuous uh, throughout, uh, it's continuous throughout Christian life. It's, again, progressive, where our justification is a one-time event. Number five, it's a big one. Justification is entirely God's work. It is, there is no human effort in salvation. We use a word to describe this. It's called monergistic. And I'll break that word down for you so you have a grasp of it. Mono, the prefix, which means one or only. And then ergon, which means work. So when we're talking about justification being monergistic, we're talking about um, one worker. Only one worker in salvation. And we know who that is. It's God. The work of God and man is what takes place in our sanctification. You can look over there. It's synergistic, and it requires human effort. It takes effort on a human part. And the, the prefix there, sin, S-Y-N, means with. So we're, with, we're working with the work of God. We're working as the Holy Spirit dwells within to make progress and to be more and more sanctified in our life. And one of the flaws of the extreme wing of the gospel-centered movement is a monergistic view of sanctification. And this is akin to antinomianism where obedience to God's commands are discarded in favor of just having the right emotions, feelings, and motivations. And those that have a monergistic view of sanctification falsely claim that any effort we expend towards holiness and sanctification is an attempt at legalism. And of course, there are a host of scriptures that oppose a monergistic view of sanctification that encourage us to strive and to grow, to reach, to work, and to make great effort with the help of the Holy Spirit. And there's a book, and I know it's been recommended um, in the past just through uh, what our church has been through. Um, some of you are new to our, the church, so you don't really know the history of, of the gospel Center movement or anything, but I wanted to just bring it and show it to you. And if you haven't got a copy of this, this is a, a great book written by Kevin DeYoung, who is a man from the gospel-centered camp. And he had a, a great perspective, and he entitled the book The Whole and Our Holiness because it fills in the gap between our passion for the gospel and our pursuit of holiness. That's the whole. That's what he talks about. And in this book, he even provides what are our motivations. What is the, the medicine of motivation for us to pursue holiness? Well, let's go on to... Number six, justification allows us to have us, uh, pre presents us with a perfect, uh, we're perfect in our standing before God. I suppose I could just read it. I wouldn't trip over my words that way, okay? I have the same thing that you have. Perfect in our standing before God in our justification. There's no way that you can be more justified or more perfected than anyone else. You can't, right? It's, it's all based on the, imputed righteousness that was credited 
credited to your account when you came to faith and trust in Christ, when you repented and trusted in Christ. We can't improve on that. But in our sanctification, we're imperfect in our walk before God. Are we still going to sin? And there's scriptures that help us understand that. Our our fallen flesh still wages war against the Holy Spirit's work within, right? We get that. And there are going to be peaks and valleys. There are going to be temptations and sins and difficulties. But it never has any bearing or effect on our justification, right? That's that's perfect. We're in perfect standing before God. But in our sanctification, there are going to be peaks and valleys, and there are going to be imperfections. All right, number seven, in our justification, it's the same for all Christians, and I alluded to this earlier. You can't be more justified than anyone else. It's, it's the same for everyone, and in our sanctification, there are varying degrees among Christians, and we all get this. After you were saved, I mean, you're coming out of left field. You know nothing. You don't know what the commands of scripture and how they're to guide you and growing more and more like Christ and that's why you team up you find a discipler you join a bible study you become part of a bible-based church that's going to emphasize discipleship and it takes time and there are people who are infants in Christ and there are people who are strong who are mature who by God's grace are very very Christ-like We're so encouraged by them. Well, let's look at number eight, because this is an important one. In our justification, the scriptural emphasis is the indicatives of scripture. Okay, The indicatives indicate what God has done on our behalf. And how much do we contribute to our salvation? We're clear on this one, right? Right. We We all get it. Zero. And so we look to the indicatives of scripture because... They provide the explanation about what has been done for us. On the other hand, with our sanctification, the scriptural emphasis, as I alluded to earlier, uh, when it leads us to all the New Testament commands, it's the imperatives. They're, They're what God uses and how he directs us, really how, and I love the Puritan prayer that says he takes his divine scalpel. And he cuts away the pieces of the, the old man, of the, 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 the person that is still in our sinful flesh that doesn't honor Christ. That's how God sanctifies us. It's through our obedience to the New Testament imperatives. Okay, number nine. This is a big one. Justification confronts true legalism in a way that sanctification does not. Legalism, and I want you to think about this so you see this with clarity. What what word is in legalism? Legal. Yeah, that's right. And so we talked about our justification. It's a legal declaration, right? So when we're talking about legalism, we're talking about our justification before God. And it always has to do with somebody trying to declare themselves righteous based on who they are and their works rather than the righteousness of God. In Luke 18, 9, the Lord provides one of the best illustrations of legalism in the Bible when he provides the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the story even ends with 
the Lord Jesus Christ telling us which person went home justified, right? Legalism always points to a self-righteousness as it relates to a person standing before God. And I'll say this, the word legalism gets grossly misused because it's grossly misunderstood. It deals with justification. That's, that's the point. A preacher exhorting a church to be obedient to the commands of Scripture is not promoting legalism. A Christian going to another believer to exhort them, or maybe in some instances to admonish them, warn them, or to confront them, to rebuke them, is not extolling legalism. That's biblical Christianity. That's, that's what the Bible has called us to do. Matthew 18, Galatians 6, a host of other scriptures. That's, that's, that's our lives. That's how they're to, to be lived out. And this needs to be emphasized. And we're actually going to see it strongly exhorted when Paul gets in Titus's face in Titus 2.15 later in our passage. When he says, let no one disregard you when it comes to, to teaching these dynamics of grace with the exhortations, four of them in that verse alone. Well, the root word in sanctification is the word sanctify, which many in the room already know means to set apart. And it's also translated holy or sacred. So what does sanctification look like practically? Practically. How do you set yourself apart from a sin-filled world? How can you be sanctified by the grace of God? Saving grace opened the door for salvation, but for what purpose? Is salvation the overarching purpose in God's plan, or is there more? Well, our passage provides answers, and so let's read it together. If you're not there already, turn to Titus 2, and we're going to read verses 11 through 15 again. This is what it has for us. It says this, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. We talked about the grace of God last week, who, who that is. That, that, that's the Lord Jesus Christ and everything connected with him as it relates to his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's the grace of God personified, bringing salvation to all men through, right, the, the, the power of Christ through the gospel. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, as the bulletin indicates, our title today is A Grace That Sanctifies You. And in this verse, verse 12 this morning, I want to show you five comprehensive actions that will enable you to give glory to God and be a witness to the world of his saving grace. And the Apostle Paul continues to instruct Titus within the context of the churches on the island of Crete. 
And because false teachers were continuing to sow factious seeds by teaching that there was no correlation between what Cretan Christians believed and how they were supposed to live, the consequences meant churches being dominated by worldly influences. And we read about those in chapter 1, verse 12. Deception, lying, gluttony, apathy. We read about them there. And so Paul's letter to Titus is encouraging the church not to compromise. And it ends up being a most appropriate letter for the church age as well. And he addresses things like qualified ministry leaders, the ministry testimonies for different groups in the church, all the stuff that you're familiar with. But the theological heartbeat of what the Holy Spirit led Paul to pen is right here in Titus 2, 11 through 15. And this passage really functions, I was thinking about it, it really functions like the, the, the cliff notes for the, for the book. Some of you younger people don't know, but the adults in the room remember the little yellow book, right? The, the, the cliff notes. And when you didn't have time to read the, the whole book and you wanted just to, some of you are smiling because you're like, yeah, it was just, it was like cheating maybe a little bit when you're supposed to read the whole assignment. That's between you and the Lord. But the cliff notes, what? They give a synopsis. They, they, they give the big picture of what was taking place. And just like cliff notes that instruct you with the big picture or the synopsis of an entire book, verse 12 provides the cliff notes for a believer's sanctification. Verse 12 instructs us with the big picture. But to get all the details, we'll need to look at other passages within the entire book. Our verse provides us with five comprehensive actions that will enable you to give glory to God and be a witness to the world of his saving grace. And the grace of God has an educative purpose. And verse 12 begins by stating this. The grace of God, again, is, is our subject for this entire uh, passage. And verse 11 emphasizes a grace that saves. And in our study of this next verse, we're going to see a grace that sanctifies us. But how does it instruct us? Well, it does so by providing us with five comprehensive actions, and these should be listed in your notes. Action number one, it means to deny externally. And we're going to talk about what this means and then how we can apply this to our personal walks with the Lord. And I'm going to do that for each one of these actions. Action number two, deny internally. Action number three, live inwardly. Action number four, live outwardly. Action number five, live upwardly. And you'll quickly notice that sanctifying grace is both positive and negative. Training you to embrace certain things while encouraging you to reject or deny others. Well, let's get started with the things that you and I are to reject. Look at the beginning of verse 12. The grace of God appeared. Okay, I'm gonna, that's not in the verse, but I'm just giving you, to remind you of the subject. I'm supplying that for you. Instructing us to deny ungodliness. The word is translated instructing in the NAS and training in the ESV. And in the Greek, it's pointing to this ongoing training and teaching and instruction that's taking place. And there's never a time in our Christian life and growth that we attain a plateau or cease to keep from learning about the grace of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, who we shared earlier, is the grace of God personified features this in the Great Commission when he said to make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you. Action 
number one, is to deny externally. And in the Greek, there's a purpose clause here that's lost in translation. But verse 12 could actually say, instructing us so that, in order that, denying ungodliness. But it doesn't have that. Why? Because in the English, it doesn't flow. It doesn't make sense. But there is a translation that, that does use it and does feature the purpose statement, and that is the King James Version reads, teaching us that, so that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And I like the King James translations because it's clear. It allows us to see the purpose for which you and I were saved. Salvation opens up the door for our sanctification. And not only does it allow Christians to glorify God by how they live, but sanctified living also points the lost world to the saving grace of God, just as our sermon proposition states. And Paul wanted to help Titus and Cretan believers see this. Thus, the first comprehensive action to take was to deny externally. And the word deny in verse 12 can also mean disown or reject or repudiate. And Paul uses this word, he, he used it only in the pastoral epistles. In 2 Timothy 12, he's, he used it to describe God's denial of those who deny him. And it's a strong word that normally points to a denial of the faith or a denial of God. And if you'll look at Titus 1.16, Paul used this word in regards to the false teachers when he wrote, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they reject him, they deny him, they disown him. And the word translated ungodliness means impiety and irreverence that characterizes the unsaved life. One English translation calls it godless living. And so the grace of God appeared instructing us to deny or disown ungodliness or godless living. What do we mean by that? Godless living, the things that create a distance or function as an impediment in your relationship with God. And for application purposes, I want to give you three words. People, places, and things. More specifically, I want to talk about godless people, godless places, and godless things. Let's talk about godless people. And you'll have to do an up-to-date inventory. I, I, I'm not in your world every day. You're, you're in it. You have to do the inventory of your own life here for application. Am I allowing my life or my Christian testimony to be influenced or impacted by godless people? Do I have unbelieving friends that are negatively impacting me and my walk with the Lord? Am I really using my relationships with unbelievers as an avenue for the gospel? Are there any relationships that the Lord might lead me to deny? And here is why this is so important, and it's really a matter of stewardship. All of us are restricted on time. We're all confined to the clock. We get that. And God's called us to redeem the time. And if you have unbelieving friends, I, I want to shepherd you right now to, to point you to the reality that you need to use that time for redemptive purposes. 
you need to be pointing that unbelieving friend to Christ and the gospel. And if you are spending time with, with um, unbelievers, just and I'm talking just hangout time, doing worldly things according to the world, okay, and, and that's all that you ever do, listen, I'm not, I'm not standing in judgment. I'm trying to help you to see the stewardship of it. Because this is the reality that's taking place. If there is no spiritual redemptive value with that friend, you are taking away the opportunity that God has given you to be investing spiritually with that time into the life of another believer. And that's how the church has grown. That's how the church is being built through discipleship. And you can actually turn that around and use yourself. If you you spending time with, with no redemptive purpose in mind is taking away the time that a spiritual mentor could be investing in you, growing you, pushing you towards Christ. And so really, it's a matter of stewardship. And I'm not saying all of us cut off our friends with unbelievers. For most of us in the room, that might mean that we don't have any family left, right? We've got a lot of unsaved family. We'll be praying for them over the, the next couple months, right? As God opens up opportunities, we, we, we want that relationship, but we want it, we want to view that relationship through the lens that God would have us have over our eyes, and that's with redemptive purposes, with his glory in mind. All right, we can talk about godless places. And the world is filled with a lot of places, but not all of them are going to promote sanctification. And we want to deny worldly environments that are going to have a negative impact on our sanctification. And that looks, again, differently for different people. Maybe going to the mall and being a, stewardship, a good steward of your finances or the materialism isn't a, is a real struggle for you. Maybe going to the beach isn't the, the, the best because it really stirs up lust within your heart. Maybe going to this place or that place, okay? There are different places, the gym, movie theaters. I mean, you guys, it's, it's life, right? You, there's environments that can hinder our sanctification, and we want to deny those in our lives. And parents, you, just this week, you probably, or this month, you had to shepherd your children, right, just as it related to Halloween, some places aren't going to be, some places they need to be protected from. It's not going to be a blessing for them to go and have an experience there. Well, let's consider godless things. And this could be anything that compromises your time with the Lord. And God commands us in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. What are the godless things of this world? that negatively impact your walk with the Lord? What might the Lord be calling you, as you just even consider, not loving the things of this world, that he would call you to disown? Do you spend more time on Facebook and watching sports than you do reading scripture? Do you spend more time playing video games or some other recreational activity rather than praying? And notice what I said. I said more time. I didn't say any time. Nothing wrong with Facebook. Nothing wrong with watching sports. 
Nothing wrong with video games or other recreational activities. Nothing wrong with those things at all. It's just that when they begin to infiltrate our life and dominate and consume our time, and the Lord is being pushed out, he's literally being denied access to our life. He's literally being pushed out. And God's saying, no, no, deny those things, push those things, create space for the Lord. This world is filled with external things which provide no internal redemptive value in our lives. And this is closely connected with action number two. Deny internally. Verse 12 continues. The grace of God appeared instructing us to deny ungodliness and to deny worldly desires. And the second vice to be denied is worldly desires. And the Greek word translated desires can also be translated lusts. Or passions. And though it can be used as a neutral term, Paul used it frequently to describe strong impulses or lusts that arise from within a person's ungoverned sinful nature. He uses it, you can look there right now, Titus 3.3. Paul used it to describe our state of unbelief. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And after salvation, just as the chart indicated earlier, the power of Christ through the gospel changes a believer's heart so that we can battle against and we can deny certain desires, worldly desires. And Paul uses the Greek adjective that shares the same root as the word cosmos, which many of you already know means world. It's talking about worldly or pertaining to the world when it's speaking of these desires that arise from and are fed by a fallen creation rather than from and by God. And so as we consider these two vices that believers are called to deny, that you and I are called to deny, our first vice, ungodliness, reveals an external battle with ungodly influences. Godless people, godless places, godless things while our second vice represents an internal battle with worldly lusts at the heart level. And of course, these two vices, what what can they do? They feed off one another. And God calls believers to deny them because he's enabled us to do that very thing because they can cause great spiritual damage. An illustration for you, it's like an old wooden French revolutionary warship that got caught in a terrible storm. The crew's plight was further compounded by the realization that a cannon was loose below deck. Every wave from the storm inside turns the unchained cannon inside the ship into an internal battering ram. Two brave soldiers risked their lives to go below and secure the loose cannon. On their descent into the ship, They discuss the fact that the cannon within is more dangerous than the storm outside. And this really reflects the battle that's taking place within our human hearts. That even in a a turbulent sea of this world with godless temptations surrounding us, right, that can damage us spiritually, what is more significant and what is more damaging is the wrecking ball of evil lusts embedded within our heart. 
And 1 John 2, 15 and 16 also allows us to see this external, inter- and this is going to be such a great study for our care group. It's going to allow us to see this internal, external connection when it comes when we come to uh, these, these verses in 2.15 and 2.16, uh, when we come to the things of the world and the lusts of the world, and I quoted 1 John 2.15 earlier that calls us not to love the things of this world, and 1 John 2.16 says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And due to our sin nature, our fallen hearts crave fallen things. And the grace of God appeared so that we could be sanctified by denying both. Both actions of denial are, are really, in the end, honor our, our sermon preposition. They're going to allow us to live for the glory of God and to be a witness to the world of his saving grace in our lives. And unbelievers have no enablement to battle against or deny the lies of the flesh, the lies of the eyes, and the lies of pride. That's why I referred to them in a past sermon, you may recall. Evil lusts, they're just lies. They're just trying to sell you something, and God wants to give you something better. But they're selling you lies. And if you embrace them, there is no satisfaction. There can't not be. What worldly lust does your heart contend with the most? Are you content with all that the Lord has given you? Are you? If nothing else changed in your life from this day forward, would you be content with what the Lord has given you? Apostle Paul put it on display for us. A guy who had to mature over time. And God brought him to the place where he, he found contentment regardless of his circumstances. Whether he had a lot, whether he had a little. And I share contentment because it's such a big thing because we live in an advertisement-filled world that's constantly trying to appeal to us, saying, you need this and you don't have that. And the Joneses have all these things. And why doesn't your family? In what ways might the Lord encourage you to deny fleshly lusts in your walk? It's easy to covet and to envy. It is. And I have to repent of discontentment all the time in my own heart. Why? Because there, there are things. Sometimes it's for the kids. I just, you know, you just, yeah, I have to, I'm mindful. I live in the same world you do, right? It's the battle. It's real. And we have to deny ourselves those, easy, those, those evil lusts, those worldly things. Another brother in the church, you know, we had an exchange just even about this. And, and it's, it's not necessarily that the evil lusts. It's not that we're battling like with the wickedly deceptive evil lusts, right? But the worldly lusts, right, that don't seem so bad, that we can rationalize, that we can go ahead and, and allow to, to, t- to camp, to reside in our hearts a little bit. It's easy to covet and to envy what others have. And sometimes it's not just the advertising. Sometimes it's a matter of pride. Our pride doesn't help either because it always 
pushes us and, and drives us with this attitude of entitlement. Like somehow we, we deserve something. And so perhaps material possessions like a nicer car or neighborhood or the newest high-def whatever, maybe that's not even an issue for you. Maybe it's a matter of pride. Maybe it's a matter of you wanting the, the um, coworkers and people to have a view of you, to esteem you, to respect you. And the lusts of pride are taking camp in your heart. Have you sought prayer and accountability from another believer in order to deny deceptive lusts of your heart? Big time important. What does God's word have to say specifically about that lust? There's so much we could say. As another measure of sanctifying grace, in addition to the negative orientation of grace's instruction to deny there is the positive function of showing us how to live in our passage, in this verse. The grace of God provides three more comprehensive actions that are going to allow us to glorify God and to give witness to the saving grace that he has put in our life. Look at the middle of verse 12. The grace of God appeared instructing us to deny ungodliness and to deny worldly desires and to live sensibly. This is comprehensive action number three. Live inwardly. And in the Greek, the previous participle, to deny, is dependent upon this main verb, to live. Showing that these two are to be done concurrently. Living and denying will take place at the same time. And this is what one commentator had to share. He said, we cannot, quote, we cannot live the Christian life without saying no to certain things. However, we are not called simply to live a life of denial. But while denying certain desires, we are to take up other pursuits as an active replacement for them. We don't just shun ungodliness. We also embrace godliness in its place. The Christian life is a positive life. End quote. I just, this... If there's one thing in Christianity today, especially amongst unbelievers, that is so distorted and so misunderstood, it's this reality that the Christian life is a positive life. I mean, what do they think? They, they think we're all fools. They, they're like, I don't want that life of denial and drudgery <clears throat> and all the things that God is obligating you to do just so that you can go to heaven. That's the picture in their minds. And ironically, <clears throat> they think that we're living the harder life. That's, that's what's sad, right? And we know because we used to live their life. And the way of the transgressor is hard, Proverbs 15, 13. It's hard. It's a hard life. Where life is, where living is, is right, is in our sanctification. It's, it's right here, living inwardly. And we need to understand it. The, the verb to live is immediately qualified by three adverbs. And it's been said that these three adverbs each provide a direction. The first, inward, pointing to ourselves. The second, outward, pointing to uprightness to our fellow man. And the third is upward, focusing on godliness to God. And the first of these three positive actions is to live with an inward focus. And here Paul uses the Greek word that... I just was 
like, I can't believe it's mentioned one more time. This is, he's like a skipping record with this word. If there's one word that you are going to remember from the book of Titus, and we're going to remember in our Christian lives, it is the word sensible. Being sensible. He's, this is like the hundredth time. No, it seems like a hundred. But it's, it's literally, he, he's, over, he's approaching a dozen times. I mean, it's crazy. And we need to see it and understand it. What it is. And it points inwardly, emphasizing being sensible or sober-minded and self-controlled. And living sensibly puts your partnership with God's work in your life on display practically to the watching world. And the grace of God helps us maintain internal control in contentious situations. That's where the self-control will show up. When things look like they're going to escalate. When things aren't going so well, it's a contentious situation. Maybe in a conversation with your parents or your in-laws or with your boss, right? This is where being sensible shows up. And it's the word that allows us to be informed so that we can be sensible, working in conjunction with the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to respond in a sensible way, not to be argumentative at work. Not to tell your boss where to go if he does that again and puts that stack of work on your desk right before closing time. Right? This is so necessary. And contrary to what some people believe, a clear mind and accurate thinking do not arise from the absence of distraction. It's not a yoga class, it's not meditation. That's not the answer, but it's from the presence of God's grace through the instruction that he provides in his word. And this is why we need to breathe it in so that we can breathe it out. And we need to be like the, the, the psalmist. We need to meditate it, med- meditate upon it night and day. We need to, 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 to be focused on it. And this will help us be sensible and self-controlled and sober-minded in all the other areas. Do you struggle with impatience? Or am I the only one? What does God's word say about impatience? Do you struggle with anger? What does God's word have to say about being angry? What about envy, contentment, disunity? Whatever it might be, God's word has the answers. And when sought out and applied, it will allow us to be sensible with the help of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see how this takes shape when we look at our next action. Okay? We, everyone's got the sermon proposition. We got five actions. We've talked about what it means to deny externally godly, godless influences in our walk. Action number two, deny internally by waging war against the lusts of our heart. Action number three, live inwardly by being sensible, sober-minded, and self-controlled. Action number four is this, live outwardly. Look at the next verse, or next word in verse 12. The grace of God appeared instructing us to deny ungodliness and to deny worldly desires and to live sensibly, to live righteously. And this adverb is only used by Paul two other times. Another time in 1 Thessalonians 2 and in 1 Corinthians 15. And both times that it's used, it's in the context of 
actions and how we live. So in all three cases, it reflects the actions of believers. God's word encourages us to be righteous as to how we live. And how we live outwardly truly is a testimony of what we believe inwardly. And I want us to see this. So if you got your Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Because really in the end, there's a concurrency that's taking place with our life of living and a life of denial simultaneously. And I want, to see, I want you to see the application. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll start in verse 20. And Paul's just talked about the unbelieving Gentiles and them being dominated and controlled by their lusts. And this sets up the contrast, the big, the big contrast that he introduces in verse 20 when he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. And so here we see the instructing grace of God put on display, right? He was our rabbi. He was our teacher. He's, it's the grace of God personified in the person of Christ. It's his word. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. This is the ongoing denial of self. And our Lord shared this reality through the call of discipleship. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross daily. It goes on, talking about the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And the lusts of deceit are, of course, worldly lusts that we are called to deny. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That we would live sensibly. This is, this is what it's helping us to see. And how we live sensibly is connected to the renewal of our mind and, and repentance as we study the commands and we wash our mind with the scriptures so that we can be sensible. Verse 24, and you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness. There it is. Live righteously. And, we, and that's what it leads us to do, to, to live in righteousness and holiness of truth. And so for application, what does living righteously look like practically? Well, verses 25 through 32 can help us big time. Verse 25, therefore... Laying aside falsehood, deny falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. Live righteously. Tell the truth. Speak the truth. And the list is just, you're going to see it, it's just going to keep going. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. And here we have to make sure that our righteous anger does not turn into sinful anger. There, there are things that can rightfully trouble us and, and anger us. And so we have to deny sinful anger, and we have to um, deal with the things that we're angry about and not give the devil an opportunity. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer. Deny stealing, deny pilfering in the workplace. Talked about it previous sermon. But rather live righteously. He must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share. And it continues. Deny corrupt speech. 
live righteously with good speech. You see that what's going on here just with the new man and the contrast and how the commands of Scripture through the renewal of our mind allow us to live sensibly and to live righteously. And that's what I wanted you guys to see. It goes all the way through. Deny grieving God, live to please God. 31, deny bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, that they'd all be put away from you along with malice. Those that struggle with anger, there's a verse right there for you that includes it. And then here we get it. Don't be unkind. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't be unforgiving. But do what? Be kind. Be tender-hearted. Be forgiven just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Well, there's a ton of application from this passage alone that will help us live inwardly and outwardly, enabling you and I to give glory to God and to put saving grace on display. Well, there's a fifth and final action, and I'll be quick. It's this, live upwardly. Look at the end of verse 12, back in Titus 2. It says, the grace of God appeared, and at the end of the verse, to live godly in the present age. And this final adverb is talking about the appropriate attitude and responsiveness that we're to have toward God and the things of God. And it's the antithesis of the ungodliness that was mentioned earlier in the verse. That Christians are to deny. Well, this should also make believers mindful of the things that are going to encourage our relationship. And just as I mentioned people, places before, people, places, and things, we can go ahead and talk about godly people, godly environments, godly things. God is so good to provide all these things, spiritual mentors, disciples, Christian friends, church families, youth groups, places that we can be surrounded with the people who are going to point us vertical who are going to help us become sanctified in our walk, that are going to help us become more and more like Christ. Retreats, conferences, church events, concerts, Bible studies, discipleship groups, missions trips, community outreach, on and on and on the list goes as it relates to places and environments that the Lord opens up for us so that we can be drawn vertical, upwardly, living upwardly for him. The sky is the limit. Some of you are familiar with the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. And in 19, or excuse me, 19, 1729, while John Wesley was a student at Oxford, he started a club with his brother Charles. These two men loved the Lord and they had a passion for holiness. So they decided to start a Christian club that quickly was mockingly dubbed the Holy Club by some of their fellow collegians. The club members rigorously self-examined themselves every day by asking the following 22 questions. These are available for you online. I didn't, I didn't print them out for you, but they are so good. They are so good. I want to read them. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Am I honest in my acts and words or do I exaggerate? 
Do I confidentially pass on to others what has been said to me in confidence? Can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress, friends, work, or habits? Am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Did the Bible live in me today? Do I give the Bible time to speak to me every day? Am I enjoying prayer? When did I last speak to someone else of my faith? Do I pray about the money I spend? Do I get to bed on time and get up on time? Do I disobey God in anything? Do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? Am I defeated in any part of my life? Am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? How do I spend my spare time? Am I proud? Do I thank God that I am not as other people, especially as the Pharisees who despised the publican? Is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment toward, or disregard? If so, what am I doing about it? 21, do I grumble or complain constantly? 22, is Christ real to me? Wow. Wow. These questions, I believe, flow out of a heartbeat for Titus 2.12. The all-encompassing actions of our sanctification. And in the end, we just want each other to grow. We just want each other to mature. We just want to see God glorified. That's what we want. That's what God wants for us. And he's worth it. He's worth it. Titus 2.12 ends with the words, in the present age. This is the opportunity that God has given us now in the present age. And Paul uses this phrase in 1 Timothy 6.17 to discourage people from trusting in riches. It was in this present world which Demas loved so much that he deserted Paul in 2 Timothy 4.10. The noun age is frequently used in the expression forever and ever or until the ages. And the emphasis seems to be the grace of, that the grace of God operates with such educative power right here, right now, in the midst of the very real world of sp spiritual struggle, temptation, and opposition to God. And next week, when we look at verse 13, we're going to see how there's an eschatological hope in looking forward to Christ. That will help us in our present time and circumstances. But right here, right now, God's grace is working in a saving way and in a sanctifying way to make us the kind of people who live the kind of lives that honor God and benefit others as well as ourselves. And the grace of God extends the power not just to rescue us from the evil world that we live in, 
but to sanctify us in its midst. God can sanctify us even, even with all that's going on out there and even with all that's going on in here. And I want to end and I want to make sure that we know this as it relates to our sanctification. It will require effort. It will require us working together synergistically with God, with, with passion, with focus, with self-denial, and living out our faith and being adhering to the, to the commands of Scripture. Pray with me. Father, you are good and gracious. You are a God that saves, but it's not without purpose. You save so that you can sanctify. And every one of us in this room that is born again knows that you have allowed us to grow and mature in our faith and in our walk. And we can make a direct connection with how you have used scriptures to challenge our hearts and allowed us to escape the godless things of this world and the deceptive nature of our own hearts and we rejoice in that. We pray that you will continue to allow us to grow in such a capacity. And Father, my heart is for the person that might be here today that is not justified, that hasn't come to the end of self. I pray that for anyone here that would indeed acknowledge the fact that they don't think that they're a Christian, that they're not a believer, that they would become desperate, that you would allow them to see that they need to come to you for forgiveness and for their justification. Your word is clear that no one can stand before you and live. That we need to be sanctified, that we need to be set apart. And that comes through the initial doctrine of justification and salvation. And so I pray, Father, that for that person that you would allow them to see the bitterness of this life and that true living and true lasting joy is found in you and that they would turn and trust this day. They would make up their mind that they want to be a disciple and recognize the reality that you're drawing them to yourself. May your will be done. May you be glorified. And would you continue to encourage our hearts with your faithfulness. We commit all these things to you, asking you to respond according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.